Just before we start, I just wanted to give a couple of shout-outs. First of all, you'll have noticed the music which is now playing at the start of the podcast. That is a courtesy of a talented Melbourne artist who goes by Sned. You can find all of his great stuff on YouTube. Just search for S-N-E-D. Secondly, we've received some emails with some very kind and encouraging words, and we just wanted to thank everyone who has spent the time to send them through. They mean a lot to us and provides the fire for us to keep producing content. We recently received one from Lily and her friends, and we tried to reply to you, but the email kept bouncing, so we thought we'd give you a shout-out here instead. So thank you, Lily and friends. And lastly, we've got some help on the team now. Nick Lucarelli, Eva Matthew Steindl, and Ariel Tay are the newest additions to the TMC team, and Connie and I are really glad to have them on board. My name is Pedro Mujabafit, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hi, everyone. Today, we're discussing the emergency specialty with Dr. Farhad Zarei, who is an emergency consultant. Hi, Farhad. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Pedro. Pleasure to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your journey? My journey? Um, Sure. Well, I started medical school in the mid-90s, straight after year 12. It's one thing that I always wanted to do. I found medical school quite challenging, but fascinating, interesting, and it always re-emphasized my love for medicine. Interestingly, towards the end of medical school, I always thought that I wanted to be a surgeon because it's what I enjoyed doing most, but um, in my early training years as an intern and a second year resident, I did surgery mostly, I actually got into surgical training, but uh, very soon realized that that's actually not for me. Long training, gruesome hours, very difficult training uh, circumstances. So I decided to not do surgery anymore, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for quite a while. I did a lot of locuming, mostly in emergency, and that's where I developed a passion for emergency medicine, and that's what I chose to do. So when you were doing your surgical training, was it just the hours that you decided that it wasn't, I guess, more so for you, Mm. and you just kind of wanted to keep the procedural skills, and that's why you kind of moved into emergency, or is it more more, more to it than that? There's more to it than that. It's, um, <clears throat> it is the hours. That's the main thing. Um, as a surgeon, as you know, probably, um, as a surgical trainee, you do horrendous hours, even these days, where you have, you know, on-call overnights, a lot of time in theatre. It is a very difficult training program. And um, I, I didn't realize that as a medical s- student because all I saw was, you know, being in theater and actually cutting and being involved in an operation assisting. But soon you realize that how difficult it actually is. <clears throat> um, I was, um, I suppose I found myself gravitating towards ED because, yes, there are, you do some 
very interesting procedural things there as well. But mostly because it's it's not just one branch of medicine. In an emergency department, you get to see absolutely everything. Anything you think of from neonatology to geriatrics, you know, obs and gynae, orthopedics, you name it, neurosurgery, most things present to a hospital via the ED. So it's a very good way if you're not, you know, if you want to keep your interests wide mm. to see everything to be in ED. And also, as you said, procedural things happen as well. It's very true because I, th- I guess there's a very minute number of cases where people are, I guess, brought in, for example, from outpatient clinics or things like that. 99% of people are going through the ED to get to the hospital. And so you get to see absolutely That's everything. Right. And I always, the, what I like about ED is the problem solving aspect of things where you present it with an undifferentiated patient with certain signs and symptoms, and it's up to you as the clinician to actually work out what's wrong with them and start initial investigations and management and make the appropriate referral. By the time, you know, you've referred, most of the time they're referring, to, you know, they're accepting team know what's going on it's very true i guess that and that's kind of what we learn during medical school is you get for example in our exams in our oskies you're given a a patient stem and you're theoretically meant to be the first person who's seeing this patient and that gives you that buzz of i guess diagnosing a patient the other thing you brought up was the fact that as a medical student you get to when you go into for example surgery or really any rotation you get to see all of the interesting cases and all of the cool things and you don't really realize the behind the scenes work or the behind the scenes effort that has to be put in you kind of get to see all the glorified bits which might give you a false perception of what that uh, I guess particular pathway might involve and it's quite interesting that once you are actually a resident and an intern that's when I guess reality hits you and you kind of realize what you actually do and don't like absolutely true yeah when you were a medical student, uh, what kind of what kind of a medical student were you? Were you quite uh, interested in going to the wards? Were you more hitting the books, or do you have advice for people as to which one they should be focusing more on? Well, I think it's important as a medical student to do both. <clears throat> you need to know your theory, which is what you learn through reading books, and also you know your journal articles and evidence-based medicine you need to be good at that but there's no point knowing just theory and not having any patient contact so it is just as crucial to see as many patients as you can and get your clinical examination skills history and examination just you know to, up to par I think I realized this <clears throat> pretty early on because um, I don't know if it's still the case but when I was going through medical school <clears throat> Um, between fifth year and final year this is the undergraduate course you had the option of doing an elective for six weeks I believe and I chose to do that going into final year by doing work in ED going to the country and really trying to get a head start on my clinical skills and I think that's a perfect thing to do if there's still an elective is there still an elective between there is, yeah. Towards so, the end? Uh, I can speak from a Monash University perspective, sure. and we have a six-week elective right. in our final year. And you can really, it's up to you whether you want to go overseas or find something locally, research, clinical-based, whatever you like. My advice is for people to use that time before going into medical school to 
just start seeing patients early. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. A lot of the times when we're on the wards, and for example, we go to ward rounds, the ward rounds may not be, I guess, high yield in the sense that you, if there's a lot of students, you might kind of be pushed to the back. And it makes it difficult because you, you're kind of stuck, especially towards the end of the year, trying to make the most most best use of your time. Yes. And whether you should be, you know, in the library studying or whether you should stick by the ward round. Mm-hmm. Do you have advice as, as to what you do if you're finding that they're not, I guess, if you're finding, for example, the ward rounds aren't very uh, high yield, should you stick with them or is that something where you, should, you kind of pick and choose which ones you go to? Because I guess it's a battle between professionalism and rocking up and also making the best use of your limited amount of time. I think it is important to go to ward rounds because the teaching that you get at the bedside is teaching you will not get anywhere else. So if you've got a good person it's usually a registrar or a consultant who takes you for a ward round. And, you know, medical students will find out very soon who's good at bedside teaching and who isn't. So um, my always recommendation is to go to bedside teaching and learn as much as you can, even at the peril of not having enough hands-on experience because it could be a big group. Um, but, I mean, look, everyone's got different study techniques and approaches to, to studying and when you got something as broad as medicine where clinical knowledge as well as clinical examination are so important, um, you do have to balance it. I mean, you shouldn't be spending all of your time going to the bedside. There should be some theory learning as well. Um, again, it goes back to what I was saying about the advantage of using your elective as doing clinical work because... Um, you're going to be one-on-one with patients. There's not going to be a ward round. So hopefully by the end of your fifth year, going into your final year, you should have a good grasp of you know clinical history taking and examination. And the, it's like anything else. The more you practice, the better you get at it. So maybe use that time, as I said, for doing a lot of history taking and examination. If you're able to get a international clinical placement, mm-hmm. and that is, and you can, I guess, tell that it is going to be quite clinical and not really research-based or tourist-based, almost. Sure. Would you recommend doing that? Would you recommend going overseas and trying else uh, something else, or would you recommend sticking to, I guess, what your local scene is? I would recommend sticking to Australian hospitals because they do things differently in other countries I would imagine yeah. not that I've worked in other countries but my advice is to use your clinical time toward your elective time towards your clinical learning yeah great because you always have time later on to pursue you know any future career that you might want to pursue focus on you know finishing your medical degree becoming a great clinician What's the uh, best pathway to get into emergency and how competitive is the field? So um, when I entered training, which was in 2007, I think, or 2008, 
um, there were quite a lot of spots. It wasn't very competitive to get in, get onto the training program. So a lot of people have got on over the last eight to ten years. <clears throat> so there are a lot of new emergency consultants these days. Um, as a result, there are limited positions for specialists in emergency medicine, particularly in big inner city hospitals. So the trend is that these days, there's virtually, or it's very, very, very difficult to get a full-time job in a city ED. So most people are dividing their time doing part-time work in one or more hospitals, which is sort of what I'm doing as well. My case is a bit different because I've been on extended paternity leave just recently. Um, but pretty much all my colleagues who, like we graduated at the same time we finished our emergency fellowship, um, some of them are working in three or four different hospitals, like you know, 0.2 or 0.3 full-time equivalent in various hospitals. Um, couple of them have decided to go to country hospitals because in outside of the city there's quite a lot of positions available for emergency consultants and I think that's going to be the trend for the future is um, you know don't expect to get a full-time job in the big city hospitals um, but if you're willing to go to a country hospital it should be very easy to get a job. How competitive is it to get onto the uh, advanced physician training for emergency? The advanced training for emergency. Well, um, you get onto the training program. There's some requirements like finishing your intern year and a second year residency. And then just through an interview and refer referees, you apply to get into the college for basic training. Um, there's really no bottleneck from going, you know, from going basic, uh, between basic training and advanced training other than satisfactorily completing all the requirements and the primary exam. So I wouldn't say it's competitive in the same way that surgical training is, for example, because I know that it's, it's actually not anymore. It's but it's much easier to get into basic surgical training and then there's a bottleneck to get onto advanced training it's very competitive because there are so such limited positions available it's not quite the same with emergency once you're on the training program once you you know complete the requirements you automatically advance through the next stage so the, i guess the biggest difficulty is finding the end jobs and piecing together those part-time equivalents in order to work the number of hours that you want Correct. to work. Well, and obviously, it's not an easy training program. There are quite a lot of requirements. There are um, work-based assessments. You're forever continuously being assessed in your workplace. There's a research requirement, and there's also, obviously, the exams, um, which in themselves are quite difficult and challenging. Um, and it's a it's one of the longest training programs. It's all together. It's um, what is it? Two years of basic training, which is your internship and your second year residency. Then there's a um, 
provisional training year, during which time you're, that's when you've joined the college and you're studying to do your primary examination. Once you completed your provisional time and passed your primary exams, then your advanced training starts, which is a minimum of four years, which pretty long advanced training yeah. program. Altogether, it's a, what is that? Two, one, four. So seven, seven years training program. Sure. You mentioned research. Yep. How important do you think research is as a medical student and maybe as a junior doctor, such as an intern? Because at the moment, there's a big push for, I guess students feel a big push in order to do research, especially in their, during their medical degree in their, while they're at university, because they believe that it's going to benefit them when they go for internships and when they try to apply for jobs. Mm -hmm. Do you see that to be the case? Do you think students should be focusing on trying to get research projects at, uh, at an early stage like that? Um, so there's two part, well, you know, two reasons, two parts to that question. Number one, is it good to have a, to, to be familiar with research as a clinician? And number two, is it helpful in terms of choosing a career? And the answer to both of those is yes. So as doctors, particularly once you're, you know, if you want to get into a specialty program, um, you need to know how to critically analyze research. Now, I know that research is not for everybody. Not everyone's interested in doing research. Some people are, and fantastic. That's how science progresses through research, particularly, you know, evidence-based medicine. Um, but at the very least, in order to be a good clinician you do you do need to understand research so that at the very least you can read and interpret your articles and apply it to your everyday work so that's number one so yes absolutely you should have you should be familiar with research and the best way to be familiar with it is doing it yourself and the second thing is because so many specialties are very competitive to get into any edge that you might have over your colleagues is going to be helpful. And one of the things they look for is what research you've done. Mm -hmm. So yes to both of those. This might be a bit of a difficult question to answer, but what does your typical day involve? <laughs> There's no typical day in the emergency department. I'll start by saying that. But there are Within that, there are certain things that are you know, done every day. So usually when you come on the shift as the ED consultant, your first job is handover. Whether it be the morning shift or the afternoon shift, there's no consultant on the night shift, but you know, the person in, night of, in charge of the night shift is usually a senior registrar, also starts with handover. So basically, um, you, know, you gather together, you call for handover, usually on a computer system, you go through all the different patients in the department, make sure that you get a good clinical story, um, clear you know, management plan, and address anything that might have been missed in the shift before. Um, that's the first thing. And then usually after that, you go out and catch up with those patients particularly the sick ones, you go and review and make sure that there's nothing missed, no new um, you know, management plan. Sometimes 
new things may need to be done. Um, and then your focus is, as an as a emergency consultant, is making sure that every patient in the department gets seen in a safe, timely manner, and that there's good flow through the part of the department that you're um, in charge of. Um, and that involves seeing patients, um, and very importantly, supervising the junior staff that you're working with. So it is expected that every, you know, intern, resident, registrar discusses the patient with you to make sure that nothing's missed and that there's a, you know, there's a timely decision made about investigations and management. Um, if there's anyone sick or, you know, if you're requested by a junior about someone they're not sure about, often you need to go and assess it, assess the patient for yourself and examine them, talk to them decide what needs to be done um, it's an emergency department so critical unwell patients come in you know resuscitation situations so in that setting as the most senior doctor on the floor you become the team leader and um, manage a resuscitation scenario um, <clears throat> yeah so it's not just patient care as an emergency consultant. You don't worry about, I mean, you do worry about individual patients, but you also need to have a holistic view of what's happening in the department. Mm -hmm. You need to manage the department, the flow of the patients, so that, you know, all the, all the presentations that come into the department get seen with a safe, within a safe time frame. Mm -hmm. That becomes quite a large chunk of your work. How has your uh, role and your work changed going from being a registrar to being a consultant? So you mentioned being the team leader in resuscitation, question. but I guess as a, on a more general basis, how has it changed? As you advance more and more in your emergency training, you go from a clinician to a manager, basically. Um, as in, you do both together, but... As a junior, you know, like I say, a junior trainee or a junior registrar or even a junior resident in emergency who's doing the provisional year, you have your own patient load and you might see three or four patients at a time and manage them individually, but you don't really need to worry about the overall state of the department and the flow and, you know, worry about someone going to the ward right now and who's waiting on an ambulance trolley to be offloaded. As the consultant on charge of the department, that becomes a huge part of your job. So you oversee all the patients and you're involved in all the little clinical decisions, but you also need to keep an overall picture of what needs to happen in order for the department to, to run properly. And that's the most challenging part of being an ED consultant. In a lot of the EDs, they have a team-based approach. So, for example, they might have a team based on colours, like yellow team or green team. Yep. What's the patient load of each team like usually, mm -hmm. and how do the teams interact with each other? Or sure. are they quite segregated in how they work? Sure. So that team approach is quite... It can be very different from place to place. Um, 
I've worked in big emergency departments like the Austin, like today. Um, I've also worked in much smaller emergency departments such as Latrobe in Tasmania, the Mersey Hospital. In a big tertiary hospital such as the Austin, there are often three or four teams. A team is usually made up of a consultant who is the overall manager of the team, a registrar, a resident and an intern. That's usually how it works. They may have a medical student or two attached to them as well. Um, one team is usually responsible for anywhere between 10 and 12 patients in most hospitals, um, in most emergency departments. And once you start having more than that, you should have more teams. Because three or four patients per doctor is about the optimum number of patients that can be seen. All overseen by the consultant in charge of the team. There's usually one resuscitation cubicle per team and there's often a short stay unit attached to a team. And that's variable. At the Austin, there's a short stay unit for each team, but in other places, maybe just one short stay unit. So that's, that's the common approach. I have worked in much smaller hospitals where there's only one team, because there's only maybe 10 acute beds in the hospital. So there's no need to break up the teams. Within your team, <coughs> You usually don't interact much with the other team unless the other team is, you know, they're overwhelmed with too many patients and you might go and help out by picking one of their patients. But usually they sort of stay apart. In most hospitals, like the big hospitals, there's also a um, what's called a rapid assessment team where <clears throat> it's like a, a senior clinician who is attached to... Austin being an example, <clears throat> who sees um, patients who come in through the waiting room and you know starts triaging them or starting up investigations, initial management and deciding whether this person needs to actually go to an acute team on a cubicle or can they be managed like an ambulatory patient staying in the waiting room and waiting for investigations or is it something simple like a sprain or strain and they get treated and sent home like in a fast track type of setting so there's a third team that's responsible for those sort of ambulatory patients or you know a bit, bit more advanced triage for people who come in say with chest pain and then for some reason they need to go to an acute team. In that case, the triaging team, once they bring a patient to one of the acute teams, they always hand over to one of the members of the acute team to continue the care of the patient. Sure. What do you find is the most rewarding part about your specialty? Um, a few things. One I mentioned before is that no one day is the same, no one day is typical. The variety of patients that you see I find um, quite rewarding. So I'm very glad that I've chosen emergency medicine for that reason. Being able to make a difference in people's lives, you know, in emergency, I mean you don't always, you don't save lives every day, but there are certainly times that you do make a difference in someone's life or someone's outcome 
Um, and it's not always the heroic, you know, someone comes in in cardiac arrest and you save them. That sometimes happens and that's really nice and rewarding. But sometimes <clears throat> being able to make decisions and you know support a family who's going through a very difficult time, like the death of a, a loved one, and just being there and explaining to them and empathizing with them and making sure that you know the death happens with dignity and comfort. I find those just as rewarding as when you save a young life. It's the sort of thing you never forget. On the converse to that, what would you say is the most difficult aspect of the job to manage? As an emergency consultant, I, I think it's um, because emergency can be very unpredictable. You can have very busy moments where you have multiple number of sick patients. Um, you're responsible for, as I said, patient flow, keeping a holistic eye on the entire team, or sometimes the entire department, and also supervising all the junior staff. So you can already picture um, some chaos that can happen. It can be very challenging to try to prioritize and deal with everything that needs to be dealt with. And sometimes, you know, you can only imagine there's someone very sick who needs some specialist input, needs to have you know certain lines, central lines put in. Um, there's an intern who needs help with the plaster. There's three people waiting to be seen, someone with chest pain. It's all about prioritizing and allocating. And I, I find that's, that, is a, that is a pretty challenging thing to do. Mm-hmm. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. How do you see the field changing in the next five to ten years? Okay. So some changes have already occurred, like I pointed out before, in that um, most new emergency specialists aren't getting full-time jobs. They're dividing up their time between several hospitals. I think that's going to be more and more. Um, because, you know, every year there's 200-odd new emergency consultants, but nowhere is... Um, nowhere near that many positions. Um, I think ultimately we're going to see more and more emergency consultants opting for working in country hospitals. More people are going to be willing to be locating to country hospitals because that's where the work's going to be. Um, and I think possibly not in the five, next five years but ultimately as um, as expectations change, I think we're going to see emergency consultants working on night shifts as well. Mm-hmm. So I think that's how it's going to change. Do you see the work in itself altering at all? Or do you think it's quite stable in what the work required of an emergency physician? 
I think it's mostly going to remain stable. Um, I suppose the thing that's probably going to change is increased use of ultrasound as a, as a diagnostic bedside tool. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I think, you know, patient management, department management isn't necessarily going to change very much. Sure. Uh, being an ED physician, mm-hmm. you have quite a different work-life balance to a lot of other physicians. Yes. How would you describe your work-life balance? Um, emergency medicine is one of those specialties where you can dictate the hours that you work, if you want to. General practice is probably the other main one. Um, I'll give you an example for myself currently. Um, I've recently had a my first child, and um, it's been fantastic being an ED physician because I've been able to work just exactly how much I want to work. Look, I suppose it's different if you've um, if you have a contract, and um, you know you've got a full time job where you're expected to work full time. But you have the option of not doing that. Um, I think that's fantastic. I think it's one of the few careers. You can't do that as a general physician. You can't do that as a surgeon. You can't do that as an orthopod. Um, As an anaesthetist, maybe. Um, But yeah, you can do as many hours as you like or as few hours as you like. So it's completely up to you how much work-life balance what's important to you, what's happening in your life. So yeah, my wife's a GP, so she's in the same boat. So we've both managed to have as much time off as we want around having a child. Yeah. Now with the, I guess, uh, putting together all these different part-time equivalents, Mm -hmm. does the fragmentation make it difficult to manage? Because I would imagine, for example, if you're working at four different hospitals, Mm -hmm. then going to each one... Um, might take up a lot of time and whatnot. Does that alter the work-life balance? Does that come into play, or is it is it quite insignificant? Possibly. Look, I, I can't speak for myself because that's not what I do. <clears throat> um, but you can only imagine if you're working, you know, like a couple of days here, a couple of days there, in three or four different hospitals, depending on where the hospitals are and what shifts you are doing. That can be not a very pleasant thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, look, what I said about, you asked me where I see the profession heading and how things might change. I think that's a consideration that most people wanting to get into this specialty would have to make. Now you knew relatively early on kind of what direction you wanted to go in. You at least knew you kind of wanted something a little bit hands-on, which is why you initially went for surgery and you've kind of swapped Given that, I guess there's, uh, there's a few types of people. There's the types of people that know what they want to do even before they get into medicine. There's And they essentially go for that from the very get-go. There's the people that, like yourself, have somewhat of an idea in what direction they want to go in. And there's other people that are completely at a loss as to what they want to do. They just know they like medicine. They don't really want to know what they want to do. 
Because of the scene at the moment where everything's getting quite difficult to get into and there's an influx of students and there's a lot of people going for similar positions, is that disadvantageous not to know what you want to do? And is there ways that you can, I guess, go about finding your way? Because some people are scared in that um, they feel like they might have to choose something and kind of go with that stick to it yeah and stick to it yeah and not have the option of for example doing surgical training realizing this isn't for them and then switching out into something else interesting question <laughs> look everyone's different i think it all comes down to one's personality <clears throat> you're right there are some people who know exactly what they want to do and they get on and do it they you know they go from the intern year to the second year to the training program and one year after a year the goal is to finish the training as soon as possible that's fine good on them that's they know what that's what they know that's what they want to do um, I would actually put myself more in that last category of not being sure what you want to do because you're right that as a medical student I always thought I wanted to be a surgeon until I realized what it involves and what I didn't actually say before is that personally I until I chose emergency as a as a career path it took me another five or six years from when I finished my surgical you know attempts um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do for a long time but so I was doing a lot of locuming in various emergency departments around the country for a good five or six years and it was there where I realized how you know valuable emergency is mm -hmm. as a career uh, almost by accident if you like um, then it sort of just clicked and it um, you know it made sense that yes this is what I want to do I've been doing it so long I've been enjoying it I never thought of doing emergency as a student, interestingly, until years and years later after having done a lot of emergency. Um, my advice to people who don't know what they want to do as a career is to try all sorts of different things until they can identify with something that they enjoy doing. And look, maybe for people who are not sure what they want to do, maybe emergency or general practice is the way to go. Because as I said, it's those are the two fields where you see all sorts of different things. You know, sometimes I play cardiologist, sometimes I play orthopod by setting fractures and plastering them. Sometimes I'm a geriatrician, sometimes I'm a neonatologist. Like I deal with everything and anything that comes in through the door initially. So if you're not sure what you want to do, I highly recommend emergency medicine. Another question I have is, what kind of people should do ED, should go into ED? Or if it's easier to answer, what kind of people isn't ED suited for? People who like a lot of control over what happens in their day-to-day -day life, in their work life, they're going to find ED very challenging to deal with. Because most days there's controlled chaos, you're not in control of what comes through the door you always need to juggle many things at the same time. Um, you know, if you have any sort of obsessive compulsive trait or you're a control freak, <laughs> stay away from emergency medicine. 
or learn that there's really no control that you can have working in an emergency department. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than that. That's the sort of person who shouldn't really do ED. Yeah. Um, and does it get easier to... Because I, I would imagine when you first, for example, come into ED, it might be a little bit overwhelming, the amount of control you don't have, essentially. Yeah. Does it get... You have e- to be comfortable with that. Yeah. Some people aren't. Some people can't do it. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you have wanted to have known when you were an intern? Regarding the previous question or generally? Just generally. <clears throat> okay. That one's a much easier to answer because <clears throat> I made the false assumption as an intern that I am now the doctor and I should know everything. So as a result, I found it a very difficult year as an intern. Um, any job that you do, whether it be plumbing, carpentry, accounting, you don't just go from university to being it. There's a training that goes with it. Medicine's no different. So as, a, as an intern, you're there to learn. You're not there to know everything. You're not there to know how to manage stuff. Some things you should have some idea, but you know, do not expect too much of yourself as an intern. It's very easy to get overwhelmed and to burn out, to feel inadequate because you don't know everything. But don't feel that way because you're not supposed to know everything. It takes years and years of clinical experience to be able to get to a registrar level, let alone a consultant level. It's like anything else. You get better at it the more experience you have. Work hard, you know, study hard. You never study, you never stop studying as a doctor. So anything you're not familiar with, you should always go home and read up as an intern. But don't beat yourself up about not knowing stuff because you're there to learn. I think it's a really good point. A lot of the people that go into do medicine are quite uh, accomplished people, even before getting into medicine. They've been at the top of their class. They're used to knowing things. They're used to being high achievers. They're used to being the best. They're used to being the best. And medicine, like you say, is really a field where you can almost never know everything. And it's always a battle against all this new knowledge that's coming in and you're always forced to keep up to date. And sometimes it feels like when one thing goes in, something else is kicked out the other side of your brain. And it can be quite a big struggle if you want to know everything and come to terms with the fact that you won't know everything, especially at at quite a junior level. I think it can be quite helpful with your mental health. That's the biggest piece of advice. Don't expect to know everything. Expect that you're there to learn and you're going to get better with time. Did you have any in, uh, mentors when you were a medical student or a junior doctor? I had an intern. Uh, I had a mentor as an intern. It was very difficult for me as an intern because no one gave me that advice. And I, at one point, I think, I was an intern at the Alfred Hospital. And I literally fell into pieces for a while. And it took me a while to actually realize that piece of advice <laughs> that I told. Um, it was great having an in, uh, a mentor to actually hone that point in, and but it took me a while to get back on my feet as an intern. Um, it is valuable to... Yeah, you should always, at any level, during 
you know, being a junior doctor, being a trainee of any specialty, to have a to have a mentor, someone to be able to talk to about, you know, any problems you might have at work, anything you're not sure about, anything you're finding difficult, just to bounce it off, to get advice and hopefully reassurance and some sort of resolution as to what to do about it. Great, wonderful. That's all the questions I had. I really appreciate you coming on and I appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. Alright guys, see you next week.